0: You are listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hello, I'm uh, Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR 21 for the RoomNow site. There have been some interesting abstracts at the ACR 21 And today, I want to focus on the question of predicting flares. I had shared with you in a previous video how dose tapering can be successful with biologics in spondyloarthritis. However, it is really important to understand what the risks of having a flare-up should a patient dose taper. There are two important abstracts that I'd like to share with you. First is 0929. This is from the same Danish group who had also looked at the efficacy and ability to dose taper. In this study, they looked at the factors that cause patients to flare up. And these were axial uh, spondyloarthritis patients. And what they did is they followed the patients up for a period of 48 weeks. And in this time, they either had a dose reduction to two thirds, a half, a third or down to zero. It was clear that in this time that most of these patients, there were 109 patients in the study, 106 of them had a flare-up due to the dose reduction. And these were either clinical flare-ups or flare-up by either imaging or BAS scores. And the clinical remission scores were that they had to reach a physician global assessment of less than 40 and BASTI of less than 40 prior to the dose taper. In this study, they showed that the most important predicting factor for future flare-ups when patients are dose tapered is actually the physician global assessment. In other words, the clinician feels that this patient has a high activity score based on the physician global assessment. These patients are probably more likely to have flare-up during the dose taper program. Another factor which came out in the higher dose um, reductions in the half group was also increasing age. Uh, So this tells us that clinically, uh, we have to be assessing our patients carefully and we feel that their disease activity is significant from our physician assessment, then we'll probably be more cautious about those tapering these patients. There was also a very interesting abstract, uh, 0916, which looked at the use of sertulizumab in patients with um, axial spondyloarthritis. After a period of 48 weeks, when these patients achieved clinical remission, they were then put into three groups. They either received the same dose of sertulizumab, the reduced dose, or they received just placebo, and they were followed up for another 48 weeks. And although a lot of these patients did not achieve uh, clinical flare-up, there was a trend towards an increase in their BAF scores, um, the BASTI, the s the CRP, and also the fecal calprotectin when the patients were in the placebo group, as in they're not receiving any active treatment compared to those who then received the full dose of sertulizumab or the reduced dose of sertulizumab. Now, this is going to be interesting to, and certainly need a longer-term follow-up that patients who do not receive any treatment are probably tending to have increased activity, although they may not uh, report a full clinical flare-up. So I think these two abstracts tell us that that we probably should be keeping our patients on some dose of uh, biologics, TNF-alpha inhibitors, uh, dose reduction, uh, dose tapering, but not completely stopping these drugs, as we do know that the the condition often does come back with a flare-up or relapse upon stopping the drug completely. So I think these two studies should add to our understanding of how to do dose tapering, how to predict flares, and how to manage our patients in the long term. I'm Anthony Chan, reporting from ACR21 for Room Now.
0: Hi there, this is Eric Ruderman from Northwestern University in Chicago, and I've been perusing the psoriatic arthritis abstracts for Room Now here at uh, ACR Convergence 2021. Um, I want to chat for a minute today about an abstract that was presented yesterday uh, and raises some interesting questions about the future of psoriatic arthritis therapy, and this was a an oral presentation on a phase two study with uh, uh presented by Philip Meese. This is a, a combination TIC 2 JAK1 inhibitor. Uh, and in this phase two study, they looked at uh, three different dosing arms of the ripositinib, one of which was presumably too low to be effective versus placebo. And the major takeaway was that the drug was effective um, uh, the primary endpoint was an ACR 20 and it met that for both of the higher doses of brepositinib. Um, I thought most interesting in the efficacy data was a pretty remarkable, uh, level of minimal disease activity with therapy, uh, reaching about 35% in the two higher doses and virtually nobody in the placebo. So that was quite an effect size. Um, uh, I, I think that beyond though, the, um, study itself, it raises some questions about Um, what we should be using and what we will be using to treat psoriatic arthritis. So the the goal here was to combine, to have an agent that would combine um, blockage of TIC2, which is really important in IL-23 signaling, which we know to be really important in skin disease, in psoriatic disease, uh, with inhibition of JAK1, which we know is really helpful for Uh, improving uh, joint disease in patients with psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis and other types of inflammatory arthritis. And uh, the thinking is that you kind of hit both of those. I guess my question is one of the challenges we've had from the beginning with uh, kinase inhibitors broadly and JAK inhibitors specifically is the, the precision of the drugs and the specificity of what they're inhibiting uh, and what kind of off-target effects we're going to see, particularly in terms of safety. Um, obviously, this is a big issue right now uh, with the whole question of the oral surveillance study with tofacitinib and the risk of um, cardiovascular events and, and deep vein thromboses. Um, and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see as, as um, somebody start looking at these combined agents that really expand the target, uh, whether any improvement in efficacy is going to be outweighed uh, by impacts on safety. Uh, this is a phase two t- trial. It's a little early to, to know the answers to those kinds of questions, and the safety data look pretty similar to the kinds of things that we've seen with jack inhibitors before, again, recognizing that there were a small number of patients in the trial, so uh, unusual effects are not going to be seen. Uh, but I, I do look forward to learning more about this, and, and obviously the of uh, the other TIC2 agent that's in development, to really see where these may fit into our algorithm for treating psoriatic arthritis. Uh, for more information on Convergence 2021, uh, keep your eye on Room Now for the next few days. And thanks again for joining me.
1: Hello, I'm Anthony Chen, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR21 for the Room Now site. One of the interesting questions that we often asked in the context of spondyloarthritis is the radiographic progression. We divide um, the patients into either the non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis group and the radiographic axial spondyloarthritis group also known as ankylosing spondylitis. And one often asks, what is the rate of progression from the non-radiographic arm to the radiographic arm. There's an interesting abstract uh, number 0907 presented here at ACR21, where they looked at the radiographic progression in the non-radiographic group over a six-year period. On average, they found that the rate of progression was about 10% every two years. In this study, where they had 79 patients, 10% of patients progress from a non-radiographic to radiographic, that is, X-ray changes at two years, another 8.3% in the next two years after that, and then finally another 12.5%, uh, going at the 4- to 6-year mark. So I think this tells us that uh, the continuum that happens with um, the radiographic progression from the non-radiographic form to the radiographic form. Equally, it's also important to understand in patients who don't progress and what are the characteristics of this patient, which will be certainly a research question uh, for the future. And one of the factors that predict these progression, and that is Uh, covered from another interesting uh, abstract, uh, and this was 0897 at ACR21, where they looked at the factors that caused the radiographic progression in axial spondyloarthritis. And what the study showed that the rate of progression was greatest between the ages of 30 to 39. And often these are times when these patients are diagnosed uh, and the delays to diagnosis could actually be adding to the Fact that this radiographic progression is happening prior to the diagnosis being made. So in this group, then 30 to 39, uh, other factors that are important is the presence of any uh, baseline syndesmophytes or baseline demographic uh, radiographic change. Baseline radiographic change predicts a quicker and accelerated phase of radiographic progression in the earlier phases or earlier ages compared to the 30 to 39 group. So if you had x-ray changes in these patients, they would kind of shift uh, earlier in terms of their radiographic progression compared to the standard, which is the 30 to 39 group. I think both these abstracts tell us that we are looking at a heterogeneous group of patients here and some are uh, quicker progressors and some are slower and some perhaps are non-progressors. So this would be an important research question for us to identify these patients and then we will be able to select the uh, appropriate treatment to help reduce the rate of progression in axial spondyloarthritis. I'm Anthony Chan reporting for RoomNOW here at ACR21.
2: Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine from Institute of Rheumatic and Autoimmune Disease in Summit, New Jersey. Coming at you at uh, day two of ACR Convergence. It's been an uh, excellent conference so far. Uh, lots of information on uh, RoomNOW.com uh, and all over you know, the RoomNOW Twitter feed. I wanted to talk about um, an abstract 0588, which looked at the effectiveness of TNF inhibition versus non-TNF inhibition uh, biologics on disease activity in obese patients with rheumatoid arthritis. This is research that has come out of the RISE registry. So what they looked at is of the over 16,000 patients from the RISE registry, 42% of them are obese patients. And they were comparing the CDI scores between patients uh, on TNF inhibitors versus non-TNF TNF biologics uh, between the two groups uh, and whether or not they're obese or non-obese. Uh, so in general, they found no significant differences in disease activity between the TNF and the non-TNF groups at 12 months, uh, as well as when they broke down you know, globally between the obese and the non-obese groups. But when they broke it down a little bit more specifically, uh, so the analyses by specific non-TNF medications showed a couple of interesting trends. So there's a higher disease activity associated with TNF use compared with abatacet in only the obese patients. Uh, So the average treatment effect here was 3.3. This was not seen in the non-obese patients. So only the obese patients were were showing a trend for TNF inhibition being worse than abitacet. In contrast, they found something a little bit different when they compared TNF inhibition to, to tocilizumab. In the non-obese patients, that at that time the TNF inhibition had higher disease activity compared to the tocilizumab. When they looked at patients who were obese, this difference was not present. They also compared TNF inhibition to rituximab and to tofacitinib. In both of those analyses, for obese, not obese or combined, there was not any difference there. So. I, I think this is very interesting. I think it's definitely a starting point for some more information that there's clearly some signal for differential effects for obese and non-obese individuals with rheumatic disease. So these are large registry populations and definitely subject to, you know, the biases within them. Um, but it is worth noting that you know, there, there are differences between the way these patients you know, may be treated or you know, different effects. Uh, related to their obesity, some of these medications are subcutaneous versus intravenous. Uh, in terms of the administration, it would be really interesting to break down for tocilizumab and abitasep how they were being administered between to see if there's a difference there. Um, some of them being weight-based dosed, or you know, for medications like TNF inhibition, we don't change the dose for uh, our obese patients. Um, you know, we also know that just obesity in general, you know, fat cells. Um, have an inflammatory effect, uh, and so seeing if there's a medication that works better or worse will be important. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's um, definitely showing a couple signals here of difference between TNF inhibition to abatacet in obesity and TNF inhibition uh, to tocilizumab in non-obese patients, and I think there's going to have to be some more information, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of the more specific breakdowns by drug administration to understand this a little bit more. Um, So I think this is a great, great study that you should definitely check out and um, lots more coverage on RoomNow.com. You could follow me on my Twitter uh, at EricDyneMD and we'll be checking in throughout the rest of Convergence with lots more information.
3: Hello, my name is uh, Yusuf. I'm from Leeds United Kingdom. Uh, Today, uh, I'm reporting on the behalf of uh, RoomNow faculty. Um, there's been many uh, abstract uh, presented uh, today uh, but the one that um, caught my eyes today uh, is about uh, the importance of uh, treating to target uh, in lupus. Uh, as we know, uh, over the last five years there have been many um, emerging uh, therapies and many also have been licensed recently. So therefore we need to um, improve uh, how we treating uh, the patient. So uh, in this study, uh, abstract um, 0865, uh, this is a multi center uh, study looking at uh, mortality uh, of uh, patients uh, with SLE. It's a very large study uh, involving 2040 uh, patients. So um, their follow-up uh, is um, seven years. However, the median uh, follow-up in this patient is about uh, nearly three years. Uh, so in these studies, um, there were uh, 2.3% uh, deaths uh, and a majority of, of the death were due to infection. So infection is still the biggest problems and about 20 to uh, 30% uh, due to uh, the disease itself. So um, they were comparing um, which targets uh, would be uh, best in order uh, to reduce mortality. So they were comparing uh, whether uh, patient can achieve ll 50, meaning um, they were achieving ll state 50% of the time or, or the Doris remission or, or uh, the best uh, in the target, which is uh, clinical uh, remissions on therapy and also of prednisolone. So um, in this study, um, what they found uh, the best uh, target would be clinical um, remission uh, on therapy, but also of prednisolone. Uh, if we manage to achieve this, um, this will, um, you know, um, reduce the mortality by um, over eighty percent. However, in this cohort, this was only achieved by fourteen percent of the patient. So maybe it's not, you know, realistic. Um, so com- comparing. Um, um, ll 50 and also um, Doris remission. Uh, so just trying to recap uh, in terms of the difference between two is that um, the uh, dose of prednisolone in ll uh, was set, uh, equal or less than 7.5 milligram, whereas the Doris remission is equal uh, or less than five milligram. And um, so what they have found, there's not um, you know, much significant difference in terms of reduction mortality. Um, so, the mortality reduced by 56% um, in um, uh, using ll 50 uh, compared to Doris remission is around 60%. So, there's not quite a difference, but uh, ll 50 was more achievable. Uh, it was achieved in about 50% of the patient, whereas if you use the Doris remission criteria, slightly stricter, uh, it's only uh, about um, uh, 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 30% people achieved it. Therefore, um, so what's the implication uh, of this clinical practice? I think it is time now for us as a clinician, we should, when we see the patient, even from the inception, from the beginning, we need to start, uh, set target to the patient. Uh, and we need to um, increase our intensity of the therapy in order um, to achieve uh, uh, the target. And I think the target that's achievable is lldas 50 uh, Thank you uh, for uh, listening. Um, So make sure you follow me uh, at my Twitter handle, at u 6 yusuf and also uh, follow uh, the uh, RoomNow.
4: Hi, ACR Convergence 2021. I am Dr. Rachel Tate, and today I wanted to share with you RoomNow's Team PSA Best of Abstracts from Sunday, November um, 7th, actually, 2021. So our team really enjoyed the emphasis on patient-reported outcomes and the patient experience information that was shared at ACR Convergence today. So the first abstract that we want to share to you as our best of was abstract number 0750 by Dr. Philip Mees and all. And the goal of this particular study was to understand if patient-reported outcomes kind of really capture our understanding of what our patients actually experience in clinical practice. So this abstract is the culmination of work that started in 2016 with focus groups to better understand what our patients were experiencing and to truly develop patient-reported outcomes in psoriatic arthritis. So ultimately, our group found that the domains that you're very familiar with, fatigue, function, pain, and disease-specific manifestations, these are all very important to our patients, and especially in regard to newer therapeutic agents as they're initiated with patients. However, some of the more relevant um, of the more relevant pros compared to others in terms of patients were most notably facet F and P said. So if you're utilizing those in your practice, I think those are good to start with. If not, maybe something to consider for psoriatic arthritis patients. The group did advise that we need to allow for reporting to happen without such restrictive timeframes. Now, if that's in clinical practice with your patients, I don't know how you can really minimize that, Um, but if you allow the patients to kind of think about their their, um, pros ahead of time, perhaps that's something you can implement in your practice, have them take home some homework, so to speak. The ultimate goal is that we need to optimize our communication with our patients. And that was something that we really felt was important. Our second best of PSA abstract today is number 0944. So this study by Dr. Manassan et L looked at stool and skin swabs from subjects with psoriatic disease and their unaffected monozygotic twin siblings. So they were a total of 18, which is nine pairs in total. So this is really interesting. They found that the relative abundance of, I hope I can get this right, ruminococcus bromide was significantly decreased in the psoriatic twin compared to their unaffected siblings. So in prior results, we have seen that ruminococcus has been virtually absent in the gut of psoriatic patients. So maybe this plays a role in their disease. We clearly need further studies to understand the importance of this. But interestingly, the team also found that in the healthy appearing skin samples that were taken from psoriatic arthritis patients, particularly in the scalp, It showed microbial disturbances and decreased diversity compared to the unaffected twins. So something interesting, hopefully that piqued your interest in psoriatic arthritis today. From Team PSA, these were our best of psoriatic arthritis abstracts at ACR Convergence 2021 for Sunday, November 7th, 2021. And of course, as always, check out more ACR21 coverage at RoomNow.com.
1: Hello, I'm Anthony Chen. I'm a consultant rheumatologist in the United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR21 for the RoomNow site. Today, it's a great pleasure to have with me Professor Laura Coates, who is a rheumatologist uh, in Oxford and also a key opinion leader in the field of psoriatic arthritis. So welcome, uh, Laura, to our interview. It's really nice to see you. So um, we've been sort of following the updates on new treatments in psoriatic arthritis. And I must say, it's uh, it's becoming a minefield with so many different choices now. <laughs> and not, not only that, we have so many different outcome measures as well that we have in psoriatic arthritis. The whole landscape has changed. It's a really exciting time, but also, I suppose, uh, a challenging time in terms of knowing how to use switch drugs. So we've seen that uh, there are some interesting... Um, posters and abstracts that you have been sort of um, involved in. So I wonder whether we could maybe cover Gusilcumab first, which is one of the new treatments and
5: mm-hmm. uh, which
1: you are presenting at ACR. So if you can give us some of your thoughts on Gusilcumab.
5: Yeah, so obviously, because Elcomab is kind of the new kid on the block in terms of uh, PSA treatments and IL-23s in general, I think are. And um, they've come to us kind of via dermatology, so they're already commonly used in dermatology, and have really amazing responses in terms of skin disease. So have have clearly um, raised the bar of what we expect in terms of response for skin disease. Um, and obviously now we have licensed uh, for psoriatic arthritis as well. So. There are two um, large studies, DISCOVER1 and DISCOVER2, uh, which were the pivotal phase three studies, uh, and they've confirmed efficacy in joint outcomes, so in ACR twenty, fifty, seventy, in enthesitis and dactylitis, and obviously in the psoriasis, which we expected. Um, there's still an ongoing question um, about their efficacy in axial disease, because obviously we've seen negative trials in AS with IL-23. But improvements in BASDI in the patients from the PSA trials who had axial involvement. So there is a plan for a study to look at that uh, specifically in axial PSA. I think Um,
1: that's, um, yeah. Which would definitely be interesting.
5: Yeah, 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 yeah. interesting. Um, it, it It seems surprising to me that they could be that different, that the drug would fail in one and work in the other. Um, but if that is the case, it would be absolutely fascinating um, kind of thinking about the difference in pathology between axial PSA and axial SPAR in general.
1: Yeah, I um, think uh, really interesting. And there's quite a lot of uh, discussion at the ACR whether these are two separate entities or whether yeah. they're the same condition that is just being over time evolving uh, into a more peripheral or more axial phenotype.
5: Yeah, how similar and how different.
1: <laughs> but at the same time we also see some treatment differences as in the response is different between a TNFI and and mm. a P nineteen or IL twenty three. So I think there's also a need to dissect them a bit more and understand which patient group they are in. So where where do you see in terms of uh, placing the a drug like gusilcum at one of these newer drugs, you know, in terms of the treatment, would they be better in the naive group? Um, you know, post or biologic failure group where, which you kind of think is the best place to treat these patients?
5: Yeah, so we're just about to publish the data from the COSMOS trial, which was the um, RCT specifically in TNF failure patients who were then treated with gazelcomab. So predominantly Discover 1 and Discover 2 were biologic naive patients. There were some biologic failures in Discover 1, but uh, but not as many uh, whereas cosmos was a specific tnf failure population and i guess as you'd expect and i think this is common across all the drugs um the response rate is lower in those who are biologic experienced but also the placebo rate is as well so the delta between the placebo and the drug looks pretty similar and um, that's really similar to what was shown in the SELECT PSA1 and PSA2 trials with upadacetnib So, uh, it seems to be relatively consistent. I think there's a there's a theoretical argument, at least, for using IL23s. Earlier on in the course of disease. Um, but it's difficult, isn't it? But you know, we are very used to using TNF inhibitors first. Uh, and there isn't, uh, unlike in dermatology, where there's really been a shift in what your first line treatment should be, because you've got clear superiority in efficacy with IL-1223, then with IL-17, then with IL-23 inhibitors. We just haven't seen that in rheumatology. We've got very similar outcomes for joint disease across most of our biologics. uh, And so it's a little bit difficult to really change that paradigm, especially in Europe where the the cost comes into it. uh, And we're typically using biosimilars first line. So I I think it's a really interesting question as to whether we should be using IL-23 earlier. uh, But I think it we're a long way from doing that in practice, at least in the UK.
1: So there'll be um, interesting uh, results uh, to look at some of these uh, patients Mm -hmm. who are treated a bit later. Uh, You mentioned the um, outcome measures were positive uh, for the study. Uh, but at this ACR conference, there's a lot of work on sort of more patient-reported outcomes as well, yep. PROs. And I know that was one of the subsequent studies in, that you present, look at some of these outcome measures. I wonder whether you can make any comments on the more patient-orientated uh, outcome measures.
5: Yeah, so obviously there's there's no point just making people's arthritis better if it doesn't make them feel better. Um, we want to be including measures that are important to patients um, and I think we're moving forward a lot in terms of the design of those patient reported outcomes. So typically we see questionnaires like the HACC looking at function and um, often as a key secondary outcome. Um, we had a patient orientated workshop for a study just on Friday afternoon and all of the patients hate the hack. They say it's just so outdated and it talks about such old-fashioned things like taking a bath and cutting your meat. Um, you know, What about people who are vegetarian? Um, so they find some of those older question, questionnaires really bizarre to complete. Um, so But I think we've made big strides in terms of designing patient-reported outcome measures that matter to patients and that are co-designed with patients. And obviously a big move led in the US has been the development of the PROMISE questionnaires. So these look across all aspects. I mean, it, it's amazingly broad, the number of PROMISE questionnaires that are available. Um They're smart questionnaires, so you can use them in a computer adaptive testing kind of format, uh, which patients love. So hopefully it means that you're reducing the number of questions they have to complete and also making the questions more relevant to them. So if they've said, no, this doesn't bother me, you're not asking more questions about the same thing. Um, and the Promise 29 that we used is looking at kind of general health. So it's looking across all the different aspects of, of a person's health uh, and really looking at the changes that we see with treatment. And unsurprisingly, given that these we know these patients are improving in terms of their functional ability, uh, their joint disease, their skin disease, they're also showing um, a good improvement in promise uh, global health. So I think it's... Um, It's obviously positive data for the drug, but it's also positive data for the patient reported outcome. Um, So we're thinking about moving to more novel outcomes. Um, The patients are very keen for us to leave hack behind. (laughs) I don't think we're quite there yet with the regulators, but, um, but I think that's a really positive move to get additional validity data within PSA, within inflammatory arthritis for some of these more novel outcome measures.
1: But that's really exciting. So the promise 29 shows promise uh, in terms Indeed. of replacing <laughs> uh, possibly the hack that I know we've used certainly in our clinics for a very very long time, and so probably needs a refresh. Uh, just be- you know on-, on before we move to other topic, any any safety signals in the Goselcomap studies? Anything to be looking out for?
5: No, so generally, I think the safety in the uh, IL 23 studies has been pretty reassuring. Um, So low levels of uh, lab lab abnormalities you know changes in blood count or liver disease um, no massive risk in terms of uh, serious infection there is a little bit as with a number of the biologics um, but nothing that looks out of keeping so I think these are generally quite well tolerated medications uh, that are showing reasonable efficacy on the musculoskeletal side and really amazing efficacy on the skin side as well
1: so, there are quite a few other sort of newer agents and some that you've been also involved in the studies. I know there is work on oligo PSA with psychokinemap. That's the axial versus peripheral in UPA and the And then there's the bimekizumab. You can see there are quite a few things where uh, certainly you've been involved in looking at. I wonder whether you could just give us some broad highlights about all these new treatments, where you see them being placed, and how we should be using them.
5: Yeah, so and we've got increasing data on some of the other IL-23 inhibitors. So we've got new data on risen here in PSA. So I think that's certainly a kind of group of drugs that are coming our way in rheumatology uh, from dermatology and will give us extra options. Um, we've got longer term outcomes from the phase two bimikizumab study, looking at IL-17A and F inhibition, um, and we will shortly, we expect next year, have the data from the phase three trials. And certainly in the phase three psoriasis study, we've seen very good efficacy in skin psoriasis with bimikizumab uh, that seems to be um higher than the IL-17A inhibition on its own. So it'd be really interesting to see what the phase three data shows, but certainly ongoing benefit in the long-term follow-up of phase two with bimikismab. Um, upadacitinib, obviously we've got um, data looking at axial and peripheral disease, Uh, It's really exciting to have another drug that works for axial disease. We've got this controversy in IL-23. We've had negative studies in AS with um, ustekinumab, and we've had negative studies with apremilast. So, For our patients with PSA and axial disease, we've got a lot smaller range of options than we do for the peripheral joints. So having Mm -hmm. efficacy both with upadacitinib and with tofacitinib in AS gives us some confidence about using those in axial patients. Obviously balanced with the potential concerns raised by the oral surveillance study, again, which is reported here at ACR. So... um, all the physicians will be aware of the warnings that have come out to us uh, around Jack inhibition. We don't know how much this is a class effect, uh, but obviously, particularly in RPSA patients. They often do have other risk factors. Uh, they are at significant risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, hyper, hyperlipidemia. Uh, so I think there's going to be some caution uh, reasonably about using the JAK inhibitors in the PSA patients. Um, we'll have to wait and see um, how that pans out, I think, in practice.
1: So uh, you've been very involved with the uh, the GRAPA guidelines and it's been a very useful chart to have in clinic where you have the six domains and then you kind of work your way down with all these agents. I think more than ever, we need this in psoriatic arthritis. I was also interested to read about your work in oligo uh, PSA. I think there was a study using second kinemap. Uh, I wonder whether you can make a short comment on that
5: yeah so I think that oligoarthritis patients are the the lost tribe within psoriatic arthritis they often don't get included uh, in the large clinical trials or at least not in large numbers Um, and we essentially treat them with the same medications but there's a lot we don't know about oligoarthritis I think it's a really big unmet need for our patients so it's great to have some data and some specific studies looking at oligoarthritis so um In secokinumab, because they have so many large trials of secokinumab in PSA, they are able to pull out a subgroup of patients who had at least three tender and three swollen joints to get into the study, but had less than five. Um, so they they represent an oligo population. Um, I think there are uh, other studies planned specifically looking at the oligoarthritis phenotype. And I think there's so much more we need to understand about these patients because I certainly find them difficult in clinic. I can't advise you whether it's likely to progress um, if we've, we, we don't have strong uh, prognostic factors that we can use. Um, some of my patients with milder oligoarthritis say, well, actually, I, I don't really need to take treatment. I don't want to have regular blood monitoring and go on to disease modifying therapy unless it's going to stop things getting worse. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, So I think there's a lot we could do around natural history and um, observational studies that would be helpful in oligoarthritis as well.
1: So a lot more work uh, to be done. And it's great to um, see researchers like you kind of increasing our knowledge and understanding of not just the treatments, but also the understanding of the condition itself. So uh, thank you very much, Laura. Thank you for your time uh, and for sharing with us your key insights uh, and that's been really helpful. Uh, so, um, so we're going to sign off here now. Uh, I'm Anthony Chan reporting at ECR21 and a pleasure to have Professor Laura Coates with me uh, talking about new treatments in PSA. Thank you.
5: Thanks.